Our scripture reading is Psalm 45 from the Old Testament and from the New Testament, Revelation 19, verses 1 through 10. And that last text will be our text for this morning. Um, The bulletin says Psalm 92, but that was my mistake. Uh, So we're going to read from the Old Testament, Psalm 45. Hear the word of the Lord. My heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the King. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty. And in your majesty, ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. And your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. All your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of the ivory palaces by which they have made you glad. King's daughters are among your honorable women. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Listen, O daughter. Consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people also and your father's house. So the king will greatly desire your beauty. Because he is your Lord, worship him. And the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The royal daughter is all glorious within the palace. Her clothing is woven with gold. She shall be brought to the king in robes of many colors. The virgins, her companions will follow her, shall be brought to you. With gladness and rejoicing they shall be brought. They shall enter in the king's palace. Instead of your father shall be your sons, whom you shall make princes in all the earth. I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the people shall praise you forever and ever. Obviously, the the beautiful one here that is proclaimed is our Lord Jesus Christ, our King. And the beauty of His church is what is seen as well. And a, a picture of that eternal state when uh, the marriage of the Lamb shall commence. Let's take a look at that in Revelation 19, verses 1 through 10. Again, the Word of God. After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia! Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are His judgments, because He has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and He has avenged on her the blood of His servants shed by her. Again they said, Alleluia! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who sat on the throne, saying, Amen! Alleluia! Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, and those who fear Him, both great and small and great. 
And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia! For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give Him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then He said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And He said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at His feet to worship Him. But He said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would open our hearts and our minds to the truth of your word and by the power of your spirit. We may not only be hearers, but doers as well. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Excuse me. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, chapters 17 through 19 uh, form the sixth vision of the book of Revelation of Jesus Christ. And here we have seen already the, the wrath of God being poured out upon Babylon, that harlot who represents the anti-Christian seduction that is in this world. She is a picture of Vanity Fair and all of its temptation and immorality, uh, a vanity that uh, fair that is... Uh, progressed in this world down through the ages, culminating, though, really in a global godless system of seduction that comes at the end of the age, this present age. And what happens to her? The harlot comes to a sudden and unexpected end, at least unexpected by this wicked world, though we do know that it is coming because our Lord has told us. We've already seen uh, the picture of the vileness and abominations of this harlot in chapter 17. And we've also seen her final judgment in chapter 18. And now here as we come to chapter 19, we come to really a a completely different picture in this sixth vision. A picture of the church triumphant after the fall of the harlot Babylon. Chapter 19 begins with rejoicing. Rejoicing in heaven. Rejoicing by the people of God in glory at the great news of Babylon's fall. Never to rise again. But you see, the the picture here is more than just rejoicing at such great news. Because the pouring out of God's wrath on the enemies of His people, it actually has another benefit for us as well. An even greater benefit for the redeemed of the Lord. The final judgment brings us to the wedding feast of the Lamb, and to the greater rejoicing of God's people uh, in the fullness of the Gospel. The fullness here of the the wedding of the bride and the bridegroom. It, It becomes not just a promise that's for the future, it comes to reality, and it lasts forever and ever. We will get into this more as we work our way through the text. And particularly as we bring in and consider the the Jewish wedding tradition. 
And, and this is really the reason why I chose uh, Psalm 45 for our Old Testament reading, because in Psalm 45, we have a picture of the bride of our Lord Jesus Christ as she looks forward to, as she anticipates the coming of her bridegroom. The church, Old Testament and New Testament, looks forward to the time that is coming. And the promise of God to us in Christ is that all of this will certainly be true. It is the fullness of all that God has promised us in Christ. And it's given to us now to help us to persevere in this world as we wait for the age that is yet to come. It's a picture of all that will be ours on that great day. A a day so great, a day so wonderful, that really the only way we can kind of look at this is to see it as a, a wedding day. That kind of gives us a glimpse of what it will be like when we are finally with the One who loved us and who gave Himself for us. So so let's prepare ourselves now to see what the Lord has for us in in the first part of this final chapter of the sixth vision, chapter 19. Let's open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to, to the tremendous and wonderful glory that awaits us on that final day that is surely coming. My theme will be that the heavens resound with the rejoicing of the people of God. Rejoicing, first of all, in the final fall of the harlot in verses 1 through 4, and then rejoicing in the wedding feast of the Lamb in verses 5 through 10. What a great day that will be when the heavens and the earth resound with the sound of the rejoicing of God's people for all that God has done for us. And the first thing we see in chapter 19 is the final and complete fall of Babylon, that it brings rejoicing in heaven. And this is announced in verses 1 and 2. Let me read those again. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia! Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are His judgments, Because He has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornications, and He has avenged on her the blood of His servants shed by her. John hears the hosts of heaven ascribe salvation, glory, and honor, power to God for the great work that He has done by destroying the harlot Babylon. The great seducer of this world. God's righteousness and His His justice are displayed for the whole creation in heaven and on earth to see. This harlot that had corrupted the whole earth with her fornications and abominations is brought to nothing. Her chief delight has been to lead people astray, to lead them further and further from the true and living God. On top of that was her relentless persecution and slaughter of the saints of God. And now God has poured out His vengeance upon her. All of her wickedness, all of her sin is met with the true and righteous judgment of God to which the hosts of heaven here rejoice exceedingly. They are filled with gladness of heart when they realize that all the opposition that has plagued the cause of Christ, that has persecuted the church of Jesus Christ in this world, it has been quenched forever and ever. It is just like that great millstone that was thrown into the sea in a previous chapter. 
chapter 18, verse 21, then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, thus with violence, the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found anymore. It's over completely. Now, you might notice here in the text that the word Alleluia occurs several times. And I should point out, this is actually the only place in the New Testament where this word is used. It's found in the Old Testament in its Hebrew equivalent, but it's only found here in the New Testament. And it means, as I'm sure you know, praise the Lord, praise Jehovah. And of course, we find it over and over in the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms. We have it here, first of all, in our text, as the heavenly chorus shouts God's praise. But it's used three more times here in this text as well, two of which actually have a particular form that we should keep notice of here. So the first is found of these other ones that follow in verse 3. Again, they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever. And what we should see here is there's, there's really a causal effect between the command of God to praise and that which is the cause of us giving praise to our God. Why do they cry out, Alleluia, praise the Lord? Because the harlot is destroyed, never to rise again. And the testimony that her end has come is uh, bound up in that phrase, her smoke that rises forever and ever. It's, it's an ongoing thing. There's never going to be a, a new time when uh, the, 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 the harlot is not under the judgment of God. It's over for her. She's never rising again. And actually, if you think about it here, we've seen this smoke rising forever and ever in previous visions. Uh, this is not something new here, though the account here that we have in the sixth vision is probably more complete. Uh, we've already seen this back in chapter 14, verse 11. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. In fact, you might also remember from chapter 18, not only remember the, the weeping of the kings and the merchants and the sailors uh, at the destruction of Babylon, but also the command to those in heaven, the command to God's people who have suffered so much because of the harlot, the command to rejoice over the fall of Babylon. Let me read that to you as well. Uh, verses 17 through 20 of Revelation 18. For in one hour such great riches came to nothing. Every shipmaster, all who traveled by ships, sailors, and as many as trade on the sea stood at a distance and cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What is like this great city? They threw dust on their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing. And saying, Alas, alas, that great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she is made desolate. And then you have verse 20. The command. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. And then here in chapter 19, we see the heavens and the church of Christ obey this command. That's what's going on here. They're obeying God's command to rejoice. 
Now, I, need, I don't think I need to remind you, but I'm going to do it anyway, that we are to rejoice even now. Not just then, we are to be rejoicing right now, as the Apostle commands us in, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. And remember, when he writes that, he, he's sitting in a Roman prison. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. We are to rejoice even in this time of trouble. As we're waiting for that great day to come when we will truly rejoice, but we are still to rejoice now. But can you imagine how joyful we will be when that day finally comes? It will be joy inexpressible, as Peter says. Now in verse 4, we we have the 24 elders back in our text here again. A a picture uh, that we saw all the way back in chapter 4. The 24 elders represents the Old and New Testament church in all of its fullness. The 12 tribes, the 12 apostles, 24. And along with them that we see here the the four living creatures again that were also from chapter 4. They are cherubim, but they represent, if you remember, the, the fullness of the living creation. That is the creation in its perfect and ideal state. That's what we saw back then. And you'll notice what happens when they hear, when the church and the creation hear the great news of the fall of Babylon, verse 4, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. There's that word again, right? So this is the redeemed people of God. It's the redeemed creation, as Paul says, is groaning waiting for that day for the full revelation of the sons of God. And they together are giving praise and glory to God for His great work of salvation and redemption and deliverance from all their enemies, all our enemies. And you might remember the word amen means it is so. It has come to pass. It's done. It's finished. And with the completion of this judgment, the church... And the redeemed world respond with Alleluia. In other words, praise the Lord once again. Now, now people of God, I want to look at this in two ways. The first way is for us to see that we should be praising the Lord here and now in this life. You and I should be doing that. We're commanded to do so. In in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, we're told to rejoice always. And I've already mentioned, you know, the Apostle Paul, what he said in Philippians 4.4 about rejoicing uh, always as well. Even if you're in prison. Because, you know, that's where he was when he wrote those words. In fact, he uses the word rejoice 12 times in the book of Philippians, that prison epistle. On top of that, he uses the word joy four times in Philippians. He tells us that he prays with all joy. Even as he's chained, right? He speaks of the joy of faith. Have you ever thought about that? The, the joy that comes from our faith in Christ? That when we're down, when we're feeling like you know the whole world is against us, what do we need to do? We should meditate on the joy that is ours because we belong to Christ. And, and what a better way to fight against the feelings, those feelings than to think of all that is ours in our Lord Jesus. All of His promises to us for the present time and for the time to come. But the Apostle also speaks of the joy that is His because of the Philippians. 
because of them. When he thinks of them living for the Lord and not living for this world, when he hears of them being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind, he says he is full of joy. And then he calls them his joy and crown. And so obviously, obviously, if there's one theme to the book of Philippians, it's surely the word rejo- to rejoice or joy. We are to be a people who rejoice even in this world, even in times of sorrow, even when circumstances don't call for joy, we should be joyful because we have a joy that's not of this world. A joy that the circumstances of this world can never take away because it's a joy that comes from knowing Jesus. And as it says in Nehemiah, in the Old Testament, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Joy in Jesus gives us strength. But also, beloved, we can look at this in a second way. This this coming Friday night, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together in our Good Friday service. And uh, I'm sure not one of us would even begin to think that any of us have ever suffered in this world like our Savior did on the cross in our place. Because we know that He suffered the very agonies of hell in all of its fury, and He did so for all of His people. That He drank down the cup of God's wrath that was against you and me, and He drank it down to its very dregs. And you and I could never know such suffering. But what does it say in in Hebrews 12 about what you and I are supposed to do as we wait for Christ's return? As we look for help in this life. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. The Lord has given us many witnesses. Witnesses of the past. Witnesses in our own lives. But truly the witness of His Word. And He says, let us lay aside every weight. And the sin that so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The Christian life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. But here's the key. Verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame. And has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. How was it possible for our Savior, for our Lord Jesus, to endure such suffering? Because he looked at what was to come, to the joy that awaited him on the other side of death, to all the rejoicing and happiness that He would enjoy in glory when He brought all things to a glorious, redemptive conclusion. He looked forward to being with His people, to being with His bride, to being with you. And what are we told to do? We're told to look to Him. 
as we run the race. Look to the joy that will be ours forevermore when that day comes and we are with Him in glory. Keep your eyes on Christ. Keep looking to Him. Keep looking to His Word, to His promises, and to the fullness of joy. That will be yours in glory. Because you see, that which we have now, which is beyond anything the world could ever offer, it's only a taste. It's just a drop in the bucket of that which is to come. And the joy that shall be ours in glory. But you see here, uh, the rejoicing in chapter 19 is just beginning. Because not only do we rejoice in the fact that all of the enemies of Christ, all the enemies of God's people, all those who would keep us from all that God has for us in Christ, not, they will not only fall and fail, but they will fall and fail fully and finally. But there's something else we rejoice in. We rejoice in what's coming when we finally make it to glory. The bride of Christ is being prepared for her bridegroom. And there is coming a glorious day, a wedding feast that will be beyond anything that you and I can imagine. The call to the banquet, to the feast, begins at verse 5. And I'm going to read verse 6 as well. And a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, and those who fear Him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia! For the Lord God, omnipotent reigns. Now, now there's no real agreement among the commentators on who's speaking here in verse 5. It, I think it's obvious to me uh, it's the Lord since it comes from the throne. Uh, the point, though, is not really who's speaking here, but it's what He says. Uh, the time for praise has come for all of God's people, for us. And, and in verse 6, we, we have that obedient response. Again, from this great multitude uh, in answer to that command from the throne. This is the multitude that no one can number. The redeemed of all time. Those whose voice sounds together like the sound of many waters. Like a mighty thundering. I, I don't know if, if you've ever been in a really large crowd just singing praise to God. You know, something in the thousands. If you've ever been there. It, it's really something to behold. To hear. To take part in. But can you imagine what it must be like to hear a multitude without number singing praise to God. But again, what's important is not so much the loudness of the sound, it's what they say. We have here the fourth hallelujah. Uh, and the second time, uh, it's followed by a reason why we sing praise to the Lord. Why we sing hallelujah. There's another reason given here. But this time, the reason is not the destruction of Babylon. As important as that is. This time, it's the fact that our God, the One who is omnipotent over all, reigns both now and forever. 
Now, now we know that He always has. But what, what we see here is that His, all, His omnipotent reign, His almighty reign, is now made completely visible for all to see. Because the enemies of God's people are no more. God, our God, the Lord God omnipotent, is revealing Himself to His people, to all the hosts of heaven, to all that is in His full and glorious majesty, in all of His glory and power. The, the word omnipotent is composed of two parts. Omni, meaning all. Potent, meaning powerful. And so it means very clearly our God is all-powerful. He is the Almighty, and there is none like Him. In fact, in the Old Testament, we actually have a picture, uh, again, so we can maybe understand it, but it shows a picture of God making His arm bare, it says. And so it has the idea of God kind of rolling up His sleeve so He can put all of His effort, all of His power into His work. And what is the work that the Lord has put all of His power into? Excuse me. Listen. I'm sorry. Let's get this right. Listen to the words of the prophet in Isaiah 52.10. The Lord has made bare His holy arm in the eyes of all the nations. That's really what we've seen in our text, right? But, but notice where the prophet says this leads. He's, he's made His holy arm bare in, in the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. I should say Selah here, right? Stop and think about that for just a moment. Isn't that amazing? That this is what God has done here in chapter 19? That's what Isaiah was talking about? And, and that's why God's people are filled with joy? That's why they, they cry out in praise to God? Because you see, the Lord has not just destroyed all the enemies that were against us, but He has brought in His glorious salvation to us, to His people, to His church, to you, through the work of His beloved Son, Jesus Christ. That is God's great power that He makes visible for all to see. And that's what follows here in our text here. Uh, Revelation 19, verses 7 and 8. It's, we could almost say, therefore, because of what God has done, let us be glad and rejoice and give Him glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, I think in order for us to kind of really understand what's going on here, we, we need to take just a brief look here at the Jewish marriage tradition. And, and there are several elements that make up this tradition. It begins with the betrothal. And this was actually uh, considered, uh, it's considered to be more binding than our typical engagement. Right? The terms 
of the marriage are accepted in the presence of witnesses. God's blessing is pronounced upon the the couple. And from this day forward, the bride and the groom are legally husband and wife, even though the marriage has not yet been consummated. The Apostle Paul refers to this tradition when he's appealing to the church in 2 Corinthians 11.2. And he says it this way, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. You can see the Jewish flavor that's wrapped up in all of that. The next phase in this tradition is the interval between the betrothal and the wedding. And it's during this time that the groom pays the dowry to the father of the bride if he hasn't already done that. Uh, we, we have an example of this mentioned back in Genesis 34.12. Sometimes this dowry is in the form of service that is rendered to the father, as we see in, remember, the proposal of Jacob to Laban for his daughter Rachel uh, in Genesis 29.20. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. Uh, This is also the time when the the groom prepares for his bride, for her to come to him. And when this time is over, uh, there is a procession that goes to the bride's home. The bride prepares, she adorns herself. Uh, The groom comes in his best attire. He's accompanied by his friends. They sing, they bear torches as they proceed to the the home of the betrothed. Uh, There the groom receives his bride and and he bears her home. He takes her home. Or it could even be the home of his parents. Again, with a returning procession of friends and family. Uh, The parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25 gives us a picture of this as well. However, it was also possible if the groom came a great distance that the feast would happen at the home of the bride. But here's the, 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 final, the final part there. There's a wedding feast. Includes a wedding supper, right? Uh, all of, could, it could last all of seven days uh, or maybe more. Uh, I'm going to come back to that at the end here, right? Uh, though you probably know where this is going. Uh, so... <clears throat> let, me, let me address that phrase there in verse 8, though, before we move on. The fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Because the question arises here whether these are the acts of the saints themselves, what they generate themselves, or whether these are God's righteous acts for His saints or in His saints. And I think the best answer is to look at that as both for several reasons. First of all, in the book of Revelation, white robes are equated with both faithful works in this life but also as the final reward that results from faithful living. Uh, We read that clear back in uh, chapter 3 when Christ is speaking to His churches, verses 4 and 5, to the church of Sardis. You have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with Me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, And I shall not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So you see both. They haven't defiled their garments. They walk with him in white, but they are also rewarded to be clothed in white garments. 
Second, if you look in Isaiah chapter 61 and 62, and that's really part of the Old Testament basis for what we have going on in this first part of Revelation 19, there's a definite connection there. The, the wedding garments of righteousness we see in Isaiah are given by God to His people to vindicate them before the world as those who have been and who still are God's righteous people. Third, in verse 7 of our text, we see that the bride, the wife of the Lamb, has made herself ready, yes, but notice verse 8 says that it was granted to her to be arrayed in fine linen and clean and bright. And so the point really is that these two things go together. She has made herself ready and it was granted to her or it was given to her to be ready. And then fourth, we all know what it says in Ephesians chapter 5 about the marriage relationship between a man and a woman. That it's supposed to be a picture of the relationship between Christ and His church. And we, and we might be tempted to think that the apostle uh, there in Ephesians is just trying to be practical, but really his main point is to teach us more about Christ and His relationship to His church, His relationship to us as His people. Because it is Christ who sanctifies and cleanses the church with the washing of water by the Word. It's Christ's purpose to present the church, her, to Himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So we can't try to make this into some sort of works righteousness out of this phrase, the, the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. It's both God's work for us and in us, as well as our work for Him as He works in us to conform us to the image of Christ. Really, we have to remember once again God's sovereignty and human responsibility, though we may not understand how that works, they go together. And that's seen very clearly in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, have you, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for His good pleasure. They go together. And you know, here's the bottom line for me in that phrase about the, uh, the, the, the righteous acts of the saint, the fine linen. This speaks of sin being gone forevermore. Not just the sin of the world, but my sin, our sin, your sin. And, and what joy it will be to no longer have to bear with the presence of sin anymore. That it will be gone. As, as Paul puts it in Romans uh, chapter 7, verses 24 and 25, O wretched man that I am, Paul's not talking as a non-Christian. He wouldn't think of himself as being wretched as a non-Christian. He's talking to himself as a believer. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And what's he say? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what awaits us. Sinlessness. Forever. Now let's move on uh, to finish our text this morning. Verses 9, we have a promised blessing given, and then it's, it's confirmed, it's reaffirmed here. Then he said to me, Write, 
Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, here's the confirmation. These are the true sayings of God. Now, we should realize this blessing here, this blessing is not for everyone. It is for those who, are, who have been called. And, and that means not just those who heard the truth, but those who have been effectually called to Christ. They are the called ones, the elect ones. And these are the blessed ones. And there will be a feast for them all. And beloved, this is a feast you don't want to miss. It is everything you could ever want. Because you will be with the Lamb. With your Savior forever. It is heaven in all of its glory. It is everything that hell is not as we're going to see next time in the last verses of chapter 19. Now in verse 10, our last verse here, we see that John is overcome by this great vision of the wedding feast of the Lamb. He's so overcome, he has to worship, right? And so he he falls down before the angel, this this servant of the Lord, to worship him. And of course, he's quickly rebuked. Uh Verse 10, And I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. You and I are to worship God as He's revealed Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we're to worship Him alone. We're not to worship angels. We're not to worship men and women who've gone before. We're definitely not to worship the dragon or the beast or the harlot. We are to obey our Lord who said, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, people of God, let me close our time here by just kind of uh, applying this whole scene uh, of the wedding feast of the Lamb. Right now, you and I, we, we are living in the time when the church has been betrothed to Christ. And Christ has paid the dowry for her for His bride, for us. We're going to be celebrating that really on Friday. Our Lord Jesus Christ has purchased His bride. He has purchased His church. He's purchased you. As as the hymn writer puts it so well, from heaven He came and sought her to be His holy bride. With His own blood He bought her. And for her life He died. We sang that earlier. The church is described as the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. Acts 20, verse 28. But now, we are in the interval of separation. That's what has come. And this time of separation covers that entire time between Christ's ascension into heaven and His coming again. And it is during this time that the bride, the church, is to make herself ready for her bridegroom who is coming. And so she arrays herself in fine linen. And this fine linen, it symbolizes her righteous acts, her being sanctified character, so to speak. Because her deeds have been washed in the blood of Christ. And we have to always remember here, this righteousness has been granted to us. Granted to her, it says, right? By God's sovereign grace. We also know 
that during this time of separation, this interval, that the bridegroom is preparing a place for his bride. Okay, that's what Jesus says in John 14. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there, you may be also. Beloved, that's what we're waiting for. At the end of the age, the bridegroom accompanied by the angels of glory, it will, He will come and He will receive His bride. He will receive His church. He will receive you. And that's when the wedding feast begins. That's what we read in our passage here. The marriage of the Lamb has come and His wife has made herself ready and this feast will not last for a week or two. It will last for all eternity. That this feast is is the climax of the entire process in which the bridegroom Christ comes for His bride, the church. And the goal and the purpose is for there to be this ever-increasing intimacy, ever-increasing union, ever-increasing fellowship, ever-increasing communion between the Redeemer and the redeemed in Christ. The bride was chosen in Christ from eternity. Throughout the entire Old Testament, the wedding was announced that it's coming. And so was the bridegroom. And that's what happened. The Son of God assumed our flesh and blood. And the betrothal took place. The price was paid. The dowry was paid on Calvary. And now after an interval, which this made me think of what it said about Jacob, which in the eyes of God, is but a little while. Because He loves His church so much. And then the bridegroom will return. And the marriage of the Lamb will come. The church on earth yearns for this moment. The militant church. The church triumphant in heaven longs for this as well. Because then we will be with Him forevermore. Then, only then, we will truly live happily ever after. In the true fullness of that phrase. Which it can only be realized when we're with the Lord. It will be a holy, blessed, everlasting fellowship and communion. The the fullest realization of all the promises of the Gospel of Christ. Now we're going to get a picture of that real soon here. Uh, In Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4, John says, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And He will dwell with them and they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their God. And you know what follows, right? God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. 
Beloved, it's going to be beyond anything that you and I can imagine. And that's why you and I cry out, even so, Lord Jesus, come. And all God's people said, Amen.